Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Wilder Podcast. I am Tom Constable and this is Chloe. I'm sorry, I'm struggling to take you seriously with both the uh, Movember moustache and the cold. <laughs> I, listeners will appreciate that over the last few weeks, Chloe has been very sympathetic to the fact that I not only am I doing something very important for charity, raising money for an important Movember cause, and also, I've got a cold at the moment, or man flu as I like to call it, of which, again, zero sympathies coming my way. You can imagine the kind of relationship Chloe and I has, as a married couple have. It's very supportive. It's exactly what you need, really. <laughs> but, you know, having said that, our interview today has very much put my woes in stark contrast. I think it's a really important topic. And one, pretty much, we're going to go pop a quick introduction for any new listeners about our podcast which i'll come to you in a second chloe but i think we're going to jump into aren't we and and not have too much preamble unlike normal episodes yeah i think that would be great to give a bit of a yeah give a recap for people that might be joining us for the first time and i'm gonna pass that over to you around who we are and what we're doing (laughs) Um, yeah then we'll then we'll just chat about the episode in a bit more detail okay um Anyone that's new, we are the Wilder Podcast. Chloe and I are, are a married couple. In fact, today is our 10-year wedding anniversary. Go figure. How we celebrating by uh, recording a podcast and... We, <laughs> we completely forgot, actually, on that note. Uh, the only reason why we remembered is because Chloe, your father, messaged us and said, happy wedding anniversary. And then we thought we probably should have a, have a cuddle. That was fine. So... More importantly, uh, the podcast is all about our journey and interviewing amazing guests. Our background is that we are wilding 80 acres in Monmouthshire and talking about the importance of sustainability, climate change, and, and trying to bring the debate and discussion to people like ourselves, who were people three years ago, professionals on our journey, not really engaging with the climate discussion or debate, mainly due to our lack of knowledge and pretty much ignorance around the topic. And as soon as we did educate ourselves, we realized that it was an important topic to cover and also, we really wanted to do something about it. So that's why we are doing our Grange project, which is the rewilding and also the podcast here. So welcome if you are new. It's great to have you with us. Chloe, would you mind talking about why this topic, why now, and what we hope the listeners will get from it? Definitely. And I, I think the privilege, perhaps, of this boring podcast is that we can cover a, quite a wide range of subjects. And we do, within this podcast, cover everything from talking about local rewilding projects to green businesses. And today's episode is really about the COP, which is... I now know the Conference of the Parties, which is a big climate event that happens on an annual basis that people are probably or may or may not have heard of. But today, the intention really behind this episode was to speak to someone much more knowledgeable about this process than we are to give us the real introductory guide to the COP, what it is, why it's important, some of the criticisms of it, what it hopes to achieve. So yeah, hopefully by the end of this episode, people will be left with a sense of, you know, I understand what this thing is. I feel a bit more confident about what happens there and therefore I can kind of engage with it in a different way. Perfect. Chloe, would you like to introduce our guest and we'll get straight into the interview? Yeah, it's an absolute delight to welcome Nora Farak to the podcast today. So Nora is the Deputy Chief Executive Officer of Climate Outreach, and they are one of the kind of leading experts in climate change communications, kind of working to engage people in the discussions around climate change. So um, she really fits with some of the values of the podcast, and we're delighted to share this interview with you. Good morning, Nora. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I've been following the work of Climate Outreach for a little while now, and I'm really interested in the idea of kind of communicating around climate change. And I'm so so delighted to have this conversation today. Uh, And I suppose I wonder whether we could start off with an introduction to Climate Outreach and an introduction to kind of yourself and how you find yourself working there. Good morning, Chloe. Lovely to meet you. And thank you for having me on this podcast. My name is Nora Firag. I'm from Maldives and I grew up in the Maldives. 
what we call the vulnerable front lines of climate change. As I was growing up in Maldives, I really got to experience firsthand how climate change affects a nation and society and community and how it actually shapes the security and economic trajectory of a country and societies. When I was younger, I used to worry a lot about what the future will be because of the changes we were experiencing. Sometimes we think of climate change as something that's really far away and there will be a catastrophic weather event at some point in future that causes harm and destruction. And it often feels like there's almost this underlying assumption that it will happen in future and we can deal with it in the future. But in my experience, whilst that is also one way and that is also true, the effect of climate change is already here and it sometimes is so slow that we don't necessarily see it or experience it or feel it on a daily basis and it builds up over time and that's how it changes the trajectory of a community and affects our lives. And I often feel like there's something about how we talk about climate change that doesn't necessarily always help people feel connected to the climate change and be able to feel like they need to address it and be part of it. So I came across Climate Outreach, an organization that's based in Oxford, that really addresses that communication challenge around climate change. And that's our mission to create a social mandate for climate action by engaging with members of various parts of the society to help people feel and engage and find their role in this uh, huge transition. So I wanted to do something that really focused on that. And uh, is that somebody who grew up in the Maldives and who lives in UK, quite often when I go back, I see the slow change and the incremental build up. And then when I come back to UK, I see almost the same changes happening, but in a different ecological setup, but that's slow. And we're now seeing the effects, floods, heat waves. So I really wanted to help, really. I mean, it's so fascinating hearing someone coming from the background that you've come from in terms of having lived in the Maldives, where I guess there is a sense of the reality of cli the climate change being so much more, well, in some ways, there's a visible impact in a, in a short term. I think as well, what you're talking about in terms of how do we talk around climate change and how do we engage people in the conversation? That's exactly what this podcast is all around. How do we make some of these conversations accessible? How do we yeah, help people connect with it in a way? Because I think it, there is a real strong sense of it. it's happening somewhere else and not to me. And therefore, you know, why should I care? Yeah. So thank you so much. It's yeah, really interesting to hear about that work. And just before we go into the main effort for today, which is all about learning about the COP, and we'll talk about what it is, what it stands for a little bit later on, which is going to be very, very useful for certainly for myself and hopefully for our listeners. I do want to highlight just one thing that you guys did during our pre-conversation. You sent through a link about Britain Talks Climate. And I've been saying this for months. It'd be wonderful just to understand how the country sees climate. And you have done and worked with your partners on, on this as well and broken it down into segments, demographics, and then also provided a toolkit as to how to engage that. So we're going to put that link in the show notes. I just think thank you for producing that because that's really helped Chloe and I really focus our, our thoughts as well. And I think we talked about maybe having a follow-up podcast episode around this whole report, which would be fantastic to get into in more depth. But I think the theme of today really is a very timely one, given what's coming up on the 30th of November. For people that don't know, it's the COP28 um, and I, I even had to Google last night, and I can't remember what COP stands for because it's, <laughs> uh, you know, we all talk about it as the COP, but it's the, it's the Conference of Parties, isn't it? Which maybe doesn't sound quite, it makes it sound maybe more fun than it is. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. COP stands for Conference of Parties. And COP28 every year, there's a number is uh, saying how many COPs we've had. So this is the 28th COP, really. 
COP is organized by UNFCCC, a secretariat of the UN. It was set up in response to climate crisis to have global cooperation and support in response to climate change. Previously, we have seen many versions of global agreements on climate change. For example, the Kyoto Protocol. In 2015, 196 parties signed up to what we call Paris Agreement. It's called Conference of Parties because UN system is not necessarily limited to nations and sovereign states. So it's a it's the inclusion of all parties that denotes the word P. When it was all established, what was the kind of intention of the COP? What was it hoping to achieve? So the beginnings of COP was 28 years ago. I was much younger, um, I have to say. UNFCCC was set up in response to recognition that science is showing that we are going towards a climate crisis and the trajectory is not looking good. Climate doesn't stay within the confined borders of nations or societies or communities. There may be countries and parts of the world that are more vulnerable to climate change, for example, the Maldives, because of our low-lying ecology and fragile coral systems. But what we do know is that climate change affects us all, and eventually it would be something that affects all parts of the world. So there was a real recognition that no country can solve this within their national borders. So intergovernmental cooperation and multilateralism is really of the COP process because there are countries that is emitting quite significantly and contributing to the global emissions, whilst there are countries that global emissions are negligible, but they're feeling the impact and effects of climate change disproportionately compared to their contribution towards the emissions. So the UN COP process is very much about countries coming together, um, setting ambitions and uh, putting national determined contributions with regards to solving this as a global issue. I mean, I'm sure you've probably been to many COPs, but if I were to sort of turn up at COP28 next week, what sort of things would I see happening? Who, you know, I don't even know how long it lasts or is there like a kind of main event and lots of, I get weird. What would we notice if we we arrive there? And also what's the atmosphere as well? Love that question. I used to think before I started working in climate sector, COP was a process where government delegations go and negotiate and make deals and there is no role for me as a member of the public to play in the process. What I've learned throughout the years is that's not the only focus of COP. So when you go to COP, what you would first notice is there are different zones. So one of the zones is dedicated for government ministerial level and delegation levels to come together and negotiate. And then there will be very close to the negotiating rooms, a zone dedicated for civil society organizations, including the corporate sector, to set up some pavilions and sort of exchange knowledge and contribute to each other's efforts. So there is an element of international dialogue happening just outside the negotiating rooms and the negotiators and ministerial rank participants from different nations will come and participate at the events within those pavilions. So there's this this almost mood setting that happens around the negotiating space, which has a significant level of influence on what happens inside the negotiating rooms. And as a civil society member like Climate Outreach, we can apply to be an observer at these negotiations and we can get a pass and we can be watching in the room whilst world leaders negotiate. 
and UNFCCC has also introduced a process, a coordinated effort where observers like myself and from UK, another organization is CAN UK, to be able to observe and make an intervention and provide support towards the negotiations in terms of what the people are thinking and what people want. And then a little bit far away from the negotiating, but not very far, would be another more of a, what we call the green zone at Cox. That is a space that is open for the public. Anybody can attend. And within that space also, there will be civil society organizations, campaigners, and corporations showcasing their efforts for climate change, but at the same time having panel discussions and dialogue at a very international level. So when somebody like me goes to COP, I would be engaging in some of these discussions and panel discussions across all these areas, and at the same time observing the negotiations and working with other civil society organizations and negotiators to raise the ambition level and sentiment. I also would like to touch a little bit upon the emotions that goes with it. It is uh, different people go for various time frames when you're there because it's such a big event. You have these moments where your energy level really goes up and there's a lot of hope because the mood song is so strong in terms of what everybody wants the national leaders to achieve at a global stage. And then there are moments where when some of these negotiations go into deadlock, you sort of get a little bit upset and sad. And for me, especially as a Moldavian, I always think about how the negotiations will affect my family and friends. And you kind of have this, you know, anxiety and at the same time, hope and joy and positivity and also moments of real sadness because sometimes we're not able to come to a consensus or agreement. Yeah, I can really imagine there's a lot of powerful emotions. And it's really interesting how you talked about that kind of mood setting. And I can really picture that, how there could be a kind of mood created and that that would be very dependent, that would feed into the negotiations, but equally the negotiations would then feed back into the mood that's created in some of the other zones. So I can yeah really see that interrelation. And I guess as I'm trying to picture what would actually happen in a negotiation. Mm -hmm. So between these kind of national leaders. So I'm imagining a room with lots of people and they're debating, I don't know, a report or an idea or what could you give me an example of what a negotiation might look like and who might be involved and yeah what the kind of hope for the process would be yes so at COP ambitions are set and then throughout the year there will be a work plan on to agree on the finer details and then when the following COP comes there will be the propositions of what has been discussed and agreed through different transitional committees and working groups at various points at COP a good example will be the Loss and Damage Fund. The Loss and Damage Fund was created in a previous COP and at the negotiating table, people want to put a specific text into the agreement that's going to be signed up by the parties. And quite understandably, because we are humans, we all focus on our own interests. And then there are campaigners and also negotiators that is also trying to be fair and equitable and be inclusive in the process. So sometimes you might get stuck with phrases like, for example, the word human rights to be in a text when they want to have an agreement, whereas some of the countries might say because of the way their governance structure is, having the word human rights is not enough for them. They need the rights to be spelled out for it to be obligatory in their national constituencies. So there will be the language sort of negotiating that goes and different negotiating blocks. Not every single country will be speaking and negotiating at everything. There will be 
blocks made, EU usually negotiates as one block. There will be lawyers, specialists, finance experts um, who will be feeding in from an expertise perspective. So you might have to stop the negotiation because somebody needs to take some legal advice and then it just continues. And then on the other side, during the negotiations, the ambition level is also something that gets quite stuck. How much are we going to be achieving in our text in terms of quantifiable and qualitative targets? So it's a political space very much, but at the same time, it is also a space that puts the groundwork and foundation and creates the work plan for the following couple of years as well. I mean, it it sounds so complex and I'm kind of amazed that they ever achieve anything, to be honest, because having facilitated quite a lot of family therapy sessions, you know, they've really got like four people in the room trying to kind of come to a a coordination or coherence around what we're working towards and how we're going to do that is hard enough, let alone with all these different kind of nation states coming with different ideas and perspectives around and, you know, and I guess with different incentives around how much ambition should be brought to the table and different agendas. So I think from a family therapy perspective, it'd be fascinating to observe what, how that develops. Exhausting to observe, but yes. It is absolutely exhausting and it is a different dynamics than I'm used to. It is complex and I also don't know all the details of the COP process in terms of all the meetings and things. There will be bilateral meetings that happens as well. And unless it's a full-time role, I think it's almost impossible to know all the details and you just have to identify your track and focus. One thing I will say is that you have the leaders, summit, global leaders coming and being part of the opening ceremony and making pledges. And rest of the negotiations are driven very much by civil service members within different governments. And one thing I really, really admire is the will and the determination of the negotiators Some of them sleep very little and are engaged in the negotiating process starting from very early in the morning to four o'clock, three o'clock in the morning again. So it is a very arduous process, but the passion of the negotiators is something very commendable. Wow. Yeah, I can only relate to not sleeping on military exercises and things like that. But something like this is just so important. I mean, when it comes to climate, we are all hypocrites. You, know, you can't get out of bed and not be a hypocrite. But I just wanted to ask this question. I get it doesn't represent particularly my perspective or, or Chloe's, but it is a comment I have heard. I've, I've got the graph in front of me, which is the CO2 in our atmosphere. Then then I'm sure you've seen it. And then the, the overlaid of the COPs, one, one all the way through to you know, 24, 25, you know, and beyond. And then the trajectory of essentially slightly increasing rate of CO2 incre- going to the atmosphere. So it's, it's suggesting that the COPs haven't yet had that significant impact that they were hoping. I'm keen to get your reflections on on that and your level of belief in COPs and the ability for it to actually have an impact. Good question. It is fair to say that most days I wonder that question just as part of daily life. When you work in climate sector, you kind of need the reason to get out of bed and keep going at what you do. I'm in no way an expert in metrics and measuring the, the sort of the carbon science behind it. But my understanding, and uh, this is the belief that's very much held by climate outreach as well. If we think about, for example, the UK context, in UK, through our research at climate outreach, we do know that people deeply care about climate and people want to do something about climate change and they want to be part of the solution. However, what's really missing is that people don't know what to do about it. So if you put that into the context of COP, what we are observing is that At COPs, we have at a global level, countries making pledges and setting ambitions. But when they go back to their own countries, making policies, making systemic change is not that easy. 
So one of the reasons that in UK that we observe through our research is that there's not enough government engagement with the members of the public on implementing those policies or systemic changes. So for example, if we talk about energy transition, there is ambition level again very high to change the energy supply. However, energy transition will affect different people differently in our society, especially those who are at the lowest income scale would struggle to pay the energy bills if we are to have a very big systemic change. So politicians are not feeling or seeing the sort of ambition level in terms of the specific policy changes. And that's, I would say that's because we are not very good at having that dialogue between the public and the government. If we have an inclusive dialogue and engage with people, for example, those who are mostly affected by an energy transition, I really believe that solutions will come through the power of people. When we speak about who are mostly affected by energy transition, I'm thinking about people who, working class people working within the sort of the factory level in the energy supply chain and also sort of in offices, not necessarily the corporates that own the energy sector. So I think it's really important that we recognize that ambition level is there and COP has helped to reduce the emissions trajectory year after year but it's not where it needs to be. And that's why COP is really important for us because we can't really afford not to engage with it and not to drive that movement to lower the emissions to the level it needs. And we need to have a dialogue. We need to engage with each other. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about the fact that obviously commitments might be made by the negotiators at COP, but then they need, still need to be adopting it in a local context. So that's a really helpful reflection. And I guess it's made me curious about whether or not the crisis itself has any way of holding nations accountable to the commitments that are made in that space. Otherwise, I guess there's a risk it could be a bit meaningless. So you kind of say whatever you want at COP, but actually it's not going to translate into anything at a local level. Yes, we published a report last year about the legal obligation of what we call Article 12 of Paris Agreement. So that is the article in the Paris Agreement which spells out that there is global cooperation for action for climate empowerment, ACE. And under ACE, governments are obligated to engage with the public to increase public awareness, public participation, access to information and international cooperation and to educate and this is where we at Climate Outreach see that we need to see more of this at national context. We need to see the governments really having a dialogue about these impacts so that we do buy in and we do, the solutions are coming from people mostly affected. In terms of accountability, that is a, a very big subject, but on a very sort of a high level, what I would say is that Paris Agreement is something that's within the UN system. Whilst it's not legally enforceable through a mechanism, there are parts of it that are enshrined to different countries' legal uh, system. So there's, a, there's almost an element where a mix of multilateral system, how it works, and also how your own national governments work and how much of the Paris Agreement has been enshrined into the national laws. Yeah, and I was just reflecting on your point about it's that education, it's that marketing piece. That's the bit we're not getting right. And and it's such an important role that climate outreach has got. Almost, I would argue, it's as important as the negotiations itself because, and I'm going to try and relate this back to um to, to a 20 mile per hour speed limit in Wales. Okay, so let, bear with me here. So recently in Wales, the Senate has decided that in the kind of pedestrianised areas, we should drop it from 30 miles an hour down to 20. And there's been absolute uproar by 
all the locals that live around those 20 mile an hour areas. People have been covering up the speed limit signs, spraying them down, ripping them down, refusing to abide by them. And it's just a sad thing to see because mm. what, what, what it means is there's not been enough education as to why that decision had been made. Mm. And there hasn't been the marketing spread and the, the engaging content to engage with those people to say, look, I understand you may be concerned by this, but let me explain to you the three reasons why this is important. Firstly, dropping it by 10 miles per hour means that there's less risk of death to your, to the children in the local area. Actually, evidence has shown it. It's only going to delay you by one or two minutes on your trip. So actually, it's probably worth it. Number yeah. three, let, the, the pollution levels are significantly lower. Just by dropping it by 10 miles per hour, it's something like two thirds of the emissions have dropped. And then finally, and I can't remember the third one. Is Chloe help me with the third one? Well, my favorite stat is that it's something like people are like, 97% more likely to allow a pedestrian to cross the road when there is a 20 mile per hour limit as opposed to 30, which is marginally makes it a lot safer for pedestrians to utilize those spaces, which is what we're trying to encourage. Which is true, but generally maybe people won't think about that. But the third point, which is even more important, which is the emits less pollution into the atmosphere. So the local areas, the towns and cities have less pollution and therefore the health will be significantly increased of the people who live nearby. So there's so many good reasons why that small change is going to make a big difference to the local areas. But no one understands that and no one heard that. All they know is, oh, the Senate is changing it so that we have to drive slower. I'm not doing that. And I, oh, it's a marketing play. It's a communication thing and we don't do that well enough. Mm. Sorry, sorry, ranting. But I think that's on a small micro scale, relatively speaking to climate, but it's still the same scenario, I think, that relates to that. But it's even harder communication because it's more of an abstract concept. Mm. shouldn't be, but it is. Tom, I absolutely hear what you're saying and I agree with you. I would say we need to do more than giving information. What we need to do is really sit down and have a conversation about why are you upset about this limit and really look at, from the perspective of the person who's objecting, something that we climate outreach is really trying to catalyze is that kind of dialogue. Reason being, again, our research shows people care about climate, but for various different reasons, we need to understand the values and the belief model and the drivers behind that concern so that they themselves can make those connections. Information is very important, and I agree that information should be given more transparently and more readily. I think giving information alone doesn't necessarily make somebody change their behavior. What really changes their behavior is when the social norms shift within the communities they live. And if we look at, you know, social science world and behavioral science world, how did the social norms shift through time? One of the ways is through really having dialogues. And I think we need to learn how to have difficult and challenging conversations at an emotional level with each other to be able to work through those barriers that exist. We need to be putting people at the heart of the conversation to drive change. I guess that's something that the negotiators at COP are going to have to be doing on a minute by minute basis is really trying to have those dialogues and really trying to understand the perspectives of each other in order to reach any form of consensus. So in some ways, it's maybe heartening that that's happening on a global scale because then that gives us the perhaps the courage or the challenge to think about how do we do that on a on a really local scale. Otherwise, I think sometimes there is that risk, isn't there, within the climate movement that you end up having these kind of echo chamber conversations with the people that kind of fundamentally already agree with your perspective. And how do you step out of that is, I think, always think the interesting challenge. 
coming back to the COP, if we were trying to tell a, a story of some of the achievements of, of the COP process, because I think sometimes it's easy to kind of look at all the criticisms of the process, what would you say are some of the achievements that have happened in so that you've been aware of of the COP process? Mm. Putting a disclaimer that I'm not very familiar with the entire history of the COP, but for me, the significant moments is definitely the Paris Agreement in 2015. That was a very big, significant event, I would say, in world history. And it is a really, I think about 194 or 96 parties have signed up to it. And that is a very significant global level of cooperation. For that Paris Agreement, could you, just a top level, for someone that may not know what that actually is, could you give someone a quick overview of that? So in 2015, about 196 parties or 194 countries signed up to the Paris Agreement. The agreement sets out long-term goals to guide all nations to substantially reduce global greenhouse gas emissions and hold the global temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius. That is recognizing that this that sort of ambition level will significantly reduce the risks and impacts of climate change. And the Paris Agreement also provides a mechanism for periodically assessing the collective progress towards achieving the purpose of that agreement. And then the third uh, significant thing about the Paris Agreement is it also provides financing to developing nations to mitigate climate change, strengthen resilience and enhance abilities to adapt to climate change. So, for example, that means in the context of Maldives, building seawalls to ensure that the soil erosion and the islands are protected from sea level rising is part of an economic development process, but it's also the way we adapt to the sea level rising. So I would say those are the three big things that's coming out of the Paris Agreement. This might feel beyond your scope, Nora, but what are your thoughts around what helped to achieve that Paris Agreement? How did the nations come together to make that commitment? Um it is a bit beyond my scope. <laughs> I think it's humanizing of how climate change affects people. We saw in the early days where world leaders, especially from those countries that are mostly affected, making a distress call for help. And the response was very much science-based. So it's a good example of global cooperation that exists in the world. There are instances where we don't see really good global cooperation. But Paris Agreement for me really represents that there is hope and there is consensus and there is a will. But the question is, how do we implement those? And I guess looking to next week and COP28, which is at, in Dubai, which I guess there are various problems and possibilities that perhaps associated with the location. That kind of what should we be looking out for for this upcoming COP? Um, for me, from our perspective, there are two things that we want to focus on. Number one, through the COP process, we're now closing a two-year process of what we call global stock take. That's literally countries taking stock of the progress we've made. And COP38 will be closing that process. We already know that we are not doing as well as we should do. So at this COP28, we will be looking for governments to recognize that we're not achieving what we need to achieve and go a little bit further than just saying that in quantifiable ways, but look at why, again, it's not happening. Ambition level is there, commitment is there, but in the national context, implementation is not happening. So we really hope that this is a moment for us to recognize, again, the power of public engagement by governments 
And I would love to see commitments from especially European and uh, US context where there's more commitment made to engage with the public and have those dialogues to solve these almost deadlocks that exist in the national context. Therefore, there can be progress within the global context. The second thing that we are looking forward for this COP28 is that loss and damage fund has been created through the COP process. And there are some operational issues and questions around how this loss and damage fund will be operationalized, if I may say. And the pre-COP and transitional meetings have agreed on some draft text. There are calls that it shouldn't be housed within the World Bank. That World Bank sort of looking after the fund is not the best option for some of the nations, especially the vulnerable countries across the globe. And I really hope there would be empathy and open ears to their call and really have that engagement and dialogue again at an international level to understand where different people in different countries are coming from and there will be solidarity in helping. Well, we'll definitely look out for your reports around engagement and the loss and damage fund um, as they come forward over the next couple of weeks. So we're coming towards the end of our conversation today. And I, I guess the intention behind this episode was to give a bit of an explanation for people who haven't perhaps been aware of what the COP is and what it's doing and the role it plays to give them kind of that understanding. But I guess from the perspective of someone that might have come in new to this process, is there anything else you'd want to say to them about what they should be aware of with respect to the COP? First, uh, UNFCCC um, has a lot of live feeds coming from the COP stage. You might not be able to hear all the conversations that happens at the negotiating, on the negotiating floor, but you would be able to hear the text and what gets passed and be able to pick up the mood. That's one thing I would like to put it towards your viewers. And the second thing is just to say that under the Paris Arg, uh, Agreement, there is this article around action for climate empowerment. And that is really about us members of the public. And we do have a right to ask our MPs and our ministers and our government to educate us, to train us, to have a dialogue with us. And that dialogue could be in the form of citizens' assemblies or even MPs' surgery within their constituencies at community level. It doesn't necessarily always have to be always at the parliamentary level or government-wide halls. It needs to be a conversation that happens at various levels within the society and parts of the society. So I would really like to say that there is a role for all of us to play in this conversation and in this effort. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. It's another interview where you know it's good when you, you look up to the timer and it's at like five minutes and then you, next time you look up it's coming to the end so I've been really really engaged with it so thank you very much and hopefully the listeners have from my perspective I'd just like to ask you one last question before we wrap up and that's just around obviously you are someone who is on the front line of this from a family perspective from a personal perspective and a professional perspective so you're a great litmus test for me in terms of where your current levels of optimism are for what's happening to us with the climate emergency. So where are you on this climate journey at the moment and what's your optimism for the future? Well, I think keeping optimism and faith in ourselves is really important. I am optimistic that we will make progress on loss and damage fund operationalizing model. The reason why I am hopeful about it is it's at a deadlock and ambition level is there. And for us to progress through the GST process, we need to recognize that and move forward. And the fact that we are here, they've already agreed to create that fund is a significant process. I am optimistic that throughout the GST process and closing of the COPs that 
this is a moment for reflection for all of us and that this is a moment to make the case for public engagement even more widely. And this is the moment where we start having that dialogue. If we have that critical transition, there's hope. That's where my optimism is at. Well, thank you so much for what feels like a really enlightening conversation today. And I really hope that, I mean, I've certainly taken away some new learnings. So I'm hoping that our listeners would have, would have done the same. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And thank you for a really lively conversation. So what struck you most from that conversation, Tom? Um, oh, mainly that Nora's really, really good at her job. <laughs> her, her ability to communicate and considered, like I said at the end, the considered way her approach. And also I need to dedicate some actual time to looking at the resources on their website, which again, links will be in the show notes. I also wanted to mention that if you want to follow more closely what's going on with COP, it's worth looking at another podcast. I know you are allowed to listen to more than one podcast here. So it's the Outrage and Optimism podcast. They are unbelievable commentators on and experts in the space when it comes to climate change. We'll put a link to the podcast in the show notes as well. And they really are at the heart of it and really give you a blow-by-blow account of what's happening, what the positives and negatives and kind of a real flavor for the event. Yeah, I feel like after the conversation, I have a much better idea of how to engage with the dialogue around COP because I can kind of picture what happens in my mind now. I have a sense around, you know, what it's trying to work towards. And I, you know, I, I guess I did have that on some level, but having spoken to Nora, I feel a lot more kind of confident around how to organize my thinking around the COP, um, which is, you know, always a kind of helpful starting point. And I'm definitely going to try and tune in to some of the live stream just because I think it'd be interesting to kind of get a sense of the mood. And, you know, obviously the media is all going to have their own agendas when they're reporting on some of the outcomes of the conversation. So I think I'd want to get a bit of my sense of my own impression as well about some of those discussions. How many people do you think that I offended when I started talking about a 20 mile an hour speed limit? <laughs> you might find out through our feedback, but I think it is an interesting example. And I think for me, one of the when it first came out and there was that bit of a for I remember reading a report by I can't remember one maybe it's the transport minister in Wales and he said this is just the start of some of the courageous decisions we're going to have to make as a nation in order to kind of address some of these challenges and from my context I really appreciated that but I also appreciate how for a lot of people that isn't going to fit for them and that's why I really love Laura's point around conversation and dialogue and it was making me think about the listening for change exercise we did at the Monmouth Climate Festival where we were talking to people about their ideas around climate change and I think I need to be doing more of that talking to people outside of my little bubble around how they make sense of it and I guess tolerating some of my own discomfort in that because I think I'm quite avoidant of what can feel like difficult conversations and it's how do you have these conversations without coming across as judgmental but I know there are lots of resources on the Climate Outreach website that can support you in that as well. Yep. All right, well, I think that's it for another week. I'd just like to say, if you found this useful, engaging, if this isn't the first episode you've listened to, please do go to anywhere you go and rate and review the podcast. That is the best way you can support us. Give us that review and that allows us to go up the rankings and then more people can find this podcast and hopefully find it useful. We're also on Instagram, grange.project and you can find everything in the show notes. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone.